Bob Hurt, and welcome to the Baseball Doesn't Fall, Far From the Tree podcast. For this episode of our podcast, The Baseball Doesn't Fall, Far From the Tree, our guest is Jim Thrift. Jim is the son of Sid Thrift, well-known baseball scout, GM of the Orioles and the Pirates, and also the architect of the Kansas City Royals Baseball Academy. Jim was drafted by the Oakland A's and played a year of professional ball, which was unfortunately cut short by injuries. But he went on to be a successful manager in the Mets organization, fell into his dad's footsteps as a respected scout, and now runs a baseball league for collegiate baseball players. Welcome to our show, Jim. Okay, I'm going to start out with, because I, I have a big interest in uh, scouting, and I know we had a nice conversation on it, but um, just want to ask, could you share with us your thoughts on, on the state of baseball scouting? Well, it's definitely gone probably well past anyone's experience in the game and the history of scouting, where I'm not really sure where the scouts years of experience and eyeballs mean with respect to the amount of data that's been inserted into the industry, which I don't really understand in the first place. Yeah. That's no. what, what, what that data really applies to. No, I totally understand. And I think uh, uh, one thing that kind of... Uh, illustrates that is on the big silver screen with, you know, the two movies that have, you know, come out about about scouting and, and they're very polarized. You had Moneyball and then you had Trouble with the Curve. Um, did you see either of those movies? I'm, I I don't, did you ever see? Yeah, I did. Um, I did because, you know, when that whole situation around Moneyball was during that time frame, uh, what I thought was interesting the first time I saw it is that they focused on certain analytics, et cetera, and so forth, and they forgot, and they never really mentioned just how good the team was. Yeah. I mean, they had, some, they had some pretty good arms. Oh, yeah. You know, you got a gold glove or Chavez, and Tejada has a great rebound year, and you've got some pretty, you had a pretty decent bullpen, but they were more focused on Scott Hatterberg learning to play first base and taking pitches and not bunting it, you know, and no more stealing. But they lost track of how good the team was. Yeah. Well, you know, the, what do they say? They Hollywooded it kind of, you know, they had to, had to prepare it for... Uh, yeah, they, they, they did it. They, 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 kind of, they kind of brushed it up for whatever impact that they thought they wanted to make based on what at that time was the first, I would say, uh, turn in the game, in the game's philosophy and history, because that's when you started talking about numbers. Right. Right. So, you know, Bill James was uh, making an impact and clubs were re restructuring how they acquired players based on numbers. So, and they, they and also, Hollywood it up a little bit. They, they also uh, threw Art Howe under the bus a little bit. I mean, he, he came out looking bad and the man won a, a hundred and some games before, uh, before the time the movie. Yeah, uh, they, they, yeah. They, 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 really, they really made Art look like a feathead. Yeah. <laughs> A guy who totally didn't want to do anything, and I don't know if that's a true portrayal or not. I, yeah. mean, I have friends at that time that worked in the organization, and then when the movie came out, they were kind of scratching their head Yeah. about how it was going to be perceived. Um, but at the same time, if you were, if, and if the best part about 
movie, if you recall it, that they do all this winning streak and have all these stats and numbers, and they get beat in the playoffs by a historically sound scouting organization, and that's the Twins. Right. I know. Contradictory, right? What did it really, did it really prove? You just kind of contradicted yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, hey, did you uh, get... The interesting thing with... And the, and the second one with Clint Eastwood yeah. was kind of sort of the same take. You know, you're looking at this and looking at that and saying the person can do this and that. I was in quite a few drafts with the Reds, personally. Right. And there were some pretty tough questions you had to answer from some veteran scouts like Larry Barton, uh, Gene Bennett, Bob Duck, for example, and Terry Hughes. You just didn't go out there and throw something out. You got, as a cross-check or area scout, you got grilled pretty good on what you actually do about the player. Right, right. And you couldn't say, um, well, maybe, if. You <laughs> mm-hmm. any of those. Well, you, you know, I think the difference, the difference, like with the Clint Eastwood movie, actually put, you know, traditional scouting in a better, a better light. You know, it sort of did the opposite of what Moneyball did. You know, Moneyball was glorifying the new way of scouting with analytics, whereas uh, the trouble with the curve kind of made that type of thought look foolish in a way. To go back to the old school you know, traditional way of of being there at the games and, you know, it's Well that's what you know, that's what scouts do. You can't you cannot shortcut a scout's ability to um, follow a player, <laughs> like a player, scout a player, and then know he can sign the player. You can't shortcut that through data and video. Right. You can't because you won't know the player. Their goal, their job is to follow the player into his draft eligible year, scout the player, like the player, and then know I can sign the player. Right. That's, that's a humongous difference. Sign him for value. What does he really worth? So you take the originations all the way back. My father was basically the legacy from um, Branch Ricky to Rex and Joe Bowen into the Pirates organization. Um, when you're grilled on what to look for in a player and then project it, if you don't see it, you leave and go to the next game. That's a key term that you use. Projection is really important. I mean, you know, you're not going to be able to project what a, a player will be or become based on numbers that you see on a computer screen. I mean... You know, you have to physically see it, I would think, you know, to make that type well, you of... Have to, uh, how, do you, how, how do you determine a player's, uh, you know, how do you determine a player's focus, intensity, and desire from video? How do you determine how he handles failure from statistics? Right. That has to be seen with the human eye and evaluated. And that's... That's really the crux of the game. My, when my father was scouting Bob Robertson and would go talk to him and so forth, Bobby would get so nervous that he wouldn't perform. And occasionally shows some power. But the last time, I, I, I physically would have liked to have seen this. One the last, towards the end of the season and so forth, my dad didn't let anybody know he was there and went into right field and climbed a 
1983. Oh, jeez. And watched Bobby Robertson hit three home runs. Wow. I knew he was going to sign him. Wow. So there's a guy saying, well, who's scouting me? Who's looking at me? And the Pirates here and another team, every time the, the scouts would show up, he could, he could barely walk and shoot up. Right. He was nervous. So I just, um, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of that. There's, you know, there's, there's been a lot of impact over for me over the last two decades. We've gone away from running tryout camps saying, well, they're all going to be at a showcase. Just go scout them there. Yeah, yeah. And then we put a layer of uh, technology on top of that. So, um, you know, where's the human element? Yes, exactly. You know, and, how do you really know? So, and, you really, so where, where I see it going, Bob, is the fact that if baseball really wants to eliminate the risk of the high school player, then just eliminate drafting high school players. And just go. They, 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 they dropped the draft to follow because you could draft a kid, know he's going to go to junior college and control and follow him for a year and then sign him before the draft. And then some of those signing bonuses were in the upper hundreds of thousands towards a million. And some of those players didn't pay it out. So, of course, let's, you know, let's drop the draft to follow. And let's go from 50 rounds to 40 rounds to 20 rounds. And let's focus on the power five and everything. If there's an occasional highly talented high school player will draft, and it's kind of what's being, what I see what's being said. And without it being written and said. Right. It's just the posturing of what's happening. Exactly. Um, you know, talking so, about, you, you're talking about how scouting has changed, and um, uh, I remember us talking and also reading an article about this uh, luncheon that I think you had some involved with, with getting you and another sports writer uh, and getting uh, started. The uh, Boys of the Summer? Is that still yeah, going? Yeah, we called it Boys of Summer. Oh, yeah, John Brockman, the former editor of the sports page of the Tribune here. Right. Probably started this 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And basically it was our form of everybody getting together every the first Tuesday of every month in the wintertime and just sharing some stories, guys getting out of the house, you know, how everybody's doing. Yes, yes, it still it still runs. We'll crank it up again. We just had our last one in May. Um, we used to stop in February, but now we, we go a little further because of the fifty odd people that are there. Almost all of them are now out of the game. Oh jeez. Is there any chances any that yeah, any of them will get back into it, or you think that's a done deal? Uh, you know, I think it, I think I think subtly, a lot of a lot of people I talk to uh, kindly say we've been voluntarily uh, retired. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't know. You know, when the, when the, when when you close the door on someone and act like anything they committed to or devoted to is no longer useful, then why would you want to try to get back in the game? Right. No, you're right. It doesn't make much sense. And, I, and, I, and a lot of these guys don't even watch baseball anymore. You know, I've heard a lot of people say that they they it's changed so much that they. I mean, think about it. I mean, now, I mean, when can you remember so many batters striking out like a hundred times a year, and that's okay? Or you know, pitchers throwing. Well, I, did my, I did. I did my best uh, three years ago 
longtime friend of mine, Al Goldis, who lives here. We got some tickets from the Rays, and we made the drive over Tropicana Field, and then we had to go in line with the rest of the public to get our tickets, not through our normal scout entrance. Right. Uh, you could not go up into the press room, so we were basically sitting amongst the families, the family section. And we we made it all the way to the seventh inning. <laughs> <laughs> That's about as much as we can tolerate. No yeah. one's watching the game. Everybody's on their phones. There's so much data on the scoreboard. I, I, I was fascinated with the active velocity on foul balls. Or <laughs> <laughs> the launch, the launch angle, or something like that, right? The launch angle, the exit velocity of foul balls. If you take it, you take a generation of time where massive people who studied hitting and pitching, it was not okay to get beat around the ballpark as a pitcher. You had to make an adjustment, and it definitely was not acceptable to hit weak fly ball outs and strike out. Right. Cost that way, right? None of that, you know, yeah, can you imagine being 60, 70, 75 year old scout coach, whatever? Do you have to go and you have to go try to suffer through watching that and thinking that failure is okay? Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're saying all those numbers like launch angle and, uh, you know, how fast the ball comes off the bat. I'm a, well, like I had told you, I'm a, a huge Pittsburgh Pirate fan. I'm real excited about this kid, O'Neill Cruz. I don't know if you uh, followed much on him. He's, I, 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 I've read some things about him. He sounds like he's pretty talented. Yeah, and he's six foot seven, but, you know, like they showed him throw somebody out and, and all of a sudden it flashes up saying, oh, we, he, the ball, the ball went 93.7 miles, uh, you know, an hour to get to first base, and then they talk about hitting the ball. It's 112. I'm like, I, I don't care about this number, but but I do, uh, you know, seeing the ball get over to first base like that, I don't need to know how fast it traveled or and see the ball leave the park. I don't have to know how quickly it did. I mean, I can see how quickly it I mean, did. I, I mean, I'm old enough to know that when we lived here and my dad was in front of the academy, there was a, there was a day in the spring, a Saturday, that we drove over to uh, McKechnie to see the Pirates play. I think it was 70 or 71 because, you know, dad had signed uh, Al Oliver, Bob Robertson, and the Clementes on that club and signed other players. And I was eight, probably eight or probably eight years old. And I thought it was just great to go over there and stand around the batting cage and watch these guys not wear batting gloves and just this loud, thundering sound of the ball leaving the bat. I was standing in right field when they were taking infield, and I saw Clemente throw. <laughs> and I've, I've never seen anything quite like it. I a vivid memory with me when he was throwing the ball to second base. There wasn't a cutoff man. When he threw the ball to third base, they basically didn't need the shortstop. You know how to gauge his pop and so forth. When he threw the ball to the plate, you could almost hear it. Yep. And it was effortless. And so you have certain barometers you see at certain points of your life that stick in your mind. And, yeah, you remember the throw he made to the plate. 
you know, all-star games or Dave Parker and things like that. That's phenomenal. Um, now you're going to tell me the guy throws the ball 97 miles an hour across the field. Looks like the ball traveled quite quick to me. Looks like yeah. it's a plus-plus arm. What else can I say? I don't, am I supposed to be smart enough to say, you know, Bob? Yeah, that looks like it's 94, 95. Yeah, yeah. That's, like, that's, like some sort of video, that's like some sort of video game. Yeah, yeah. And and that's what they do on videos, right? They got they, the numbers flash up and stuff. It's, you know, yeah. it's... Where's the, human, where's the human element? That's what I've been so concerned about. And, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the, uh, Stephanie Epstein, who wrote the article in Sports Illustrated 3 in 2019 about my observations, and she was curious about why the clubs were letting all these better people go, and the clubs were saying, well, we're still hiring for scouts. Well, they're not hiring scouts. They're hiring analytic people, calling them scouts. Right. Form, so, former uh, Fantasy League uh, players. Held, you know, somebody Something had, like that or something that's, something that's of, a, of a cheaper price. Yeah. Um, I just, I just, the dehumanization of, of baseball. Yeah. You know what, really be, before I, cause I have a bunch of, I, I definitely want to talk about scouting, but something that, um, your father was, well, like I said, the architect of, can, um, can we talk about the Royals, uh, baseball academy? I mean, I always found that to be so fascinating. Uh, you know, the whole concept. Uh, can you give us a little history on it and then, uh, you know, any other thoughts? Well, as, as basic as a discussion as it was, when my father was with the, with the uh, Pirates and then went to scout with the Royals, Huey Kaufman was a visionary. And there was a discussion at the meetings, and uh, Mr. Kaufman was basically asking a question Do you think it's possible to take athletes? train them to be baseball players and my father's answer was at that time he goes well the best athletes in the world play baseball and Mr. Coffin was such a visionary he goes I want to build an academy and he came to Sarasota and bought 121 acres and designed the grounds and the ponds and the houses where my father at that time and Buzzy Keller Steve Korchek lived were managing the team the Olympic style swimming pool the dormitory the handball In your that was like in your backyard, right? I mean, the the academy. I mean, like you yeah, said, the house was, yeah, the house was on the complex. I had a hundred twenty-one acre backyard for baseball. What <laughs> <laughs> kid would enjoy that? Oh yeah, uh, I know I would. I mean, there was there was there was concepts and ideas that you had Steve Boros and Chuck Stobbs and Joe Tanner came through. 
through there. And, you know, Joe Tanner is basically why Ron Washington is such an amazing infield coach because Joe Tanner was Wash's infield coach. And Wash was signed as a catcher until they saw him field. Are you kidding me? I didn't know that. And a plus a, yeah, yeah, my dad signed Wash. And Frank White. And UL Washington. And all those guys who came through there. And you could say, well, you know, what do I remember? I, I remember Wes Santini was an Olympian runner. And basically came to the academy and measured every player's stride at about an 80 to 90% pace of speed. So he could individually design where they should, how they should make their turn around the base. Wow. Um, one Saturday morning, I ran over there, sat on the floor, and I watched Ted Williams talk for two and a half hours about hitting. Wow. In his street clothes. <laughs> and I know he could do that. <laughs> yeah, and I, and, I, and I have it on DVD, and it's one of the most phenomenal things you'd ever see. I have no idea what to do with it. It would probably sell a million copies if I marketed it. Oh, I bet. But the basic things he says in there are absolutely mind-boggling. And that, he says, at one point, he goes, in one year I didn't play well because I did not get into the rice bucket enough and do enough fingertip push-up. Wow. So what does that say for all the strength and conditioning guys in this era? The... Um, the first time we had vitamins, <laughs> the first time we had vitamins from one of the laboratories because, you know, some kids were vitamin deficient. <laughs> I think this, I, I know this is true. I didn't witness it. My dad walks in the trainer's room and the trainer is, is taping the, the vitamins to the people's arms, kids' arms. <laughs> what are you doing? Well, we don't, I don't know what to do with the vitamins. He goes, they're chewable. You're fired. And he's fired of your trainer. <laughs> so, Everybody thought my dad was a little rough around the edges, but he just he didn't have time to waste. Right. Um, handball courts were used with Joe Tanner to, to work on fielding action and bunting, and uh, Steve Boros and Joe Tanner were measuring off leads and timing releases and throws the second time-measured lead. And Joe Tanner was talking about angles of the bat, how to bunt, and how to bunt successfully, and there were chalk lines on the field where it was a guaranteed base hit or a perfect sacrifice, but everything was meticulously drawn out. There was a time when my father uh, came across to meet Dr. Bill Harrison in California, and I look in the back of the academy, and there's these, the players are on trampolines, and they're trying to do jumping jacks with their legs, and then have their arms go in the opposite direction of making circles. Basically, visual tracking, visual dynamics, ball tracking, visualization, that all started there, went into Charlie Lau, went into the players. If you recall the quote of George Brett nearly hitting 400, but he was on the DL a lot prior to the video era, he will say he probably visualized himself having a hundred bats a day, just sitting alone quietly visualizing. Wow. That all started there. There was, the most fascinating thing to me was we met a man named John Nash Ott, who was a study of human performance, lighting, etc. He actually was one of the inventors and, and designers behind Time 
time-lapse photography. So I'll be 60 years old this year. Time-lapse photography is described to me on Sunday nights when I was watching The Wonderful World of Disney and you watched The Flower Bloom. Right, right. I remember that. Time-lapse photography. He lived in Sarasota. Great inventor. Yeah. And so there's this discussion that the, that the ball is going to rise and how fast does the ball spin. So I have not seen it until a couple of years ago when I actually saw it ripped by a sports writer in, of all things, the, the uh, Wall Street Journal. So this thing called spin rate right. is a lie because it's based on a time frame of a minute. Right? Right. Spin rate. RPMs, rotations per minute. It does not take a ball a minute to get to the plate. If it did, I would still be playing. Right, right. So John Nashaw came out. They took Al Baird and another right-handed pitcher. I can't remember if it was David Maine or whatever. And they and they painted one side of the ball black. And both of these guys threw 90, 94 miles an hour. So he set up the camera lights to form like a tunnel from the mound to home plate and the cameras. So they could focus on the travel of the ball. But how many times did the ball actually rotate at 92 miles an hour, 94 miles an hour, for least point to when it hit the catcher's mitt? And based on the speed, the ball rotates 11 to 14 times. Wow. You mean from the time it leaves his fingertips to the time it gets... From the time it... Really, remember, you've got time-lapse photography. At that time, you can really slow everything down, so you can actually watch the ball spin or rotate. Remember, it's traveling 94 miles an hour, which is four-tenths of a second. Right. And they're watching the ball travel, and every time you can see it, white, black, white, and they counted it. They put it back in the lab. Wow. So the ball is traveling at, at that rate. They talk about spin rate. How many times it spins? Well, if it did that, it should take off like an airplane. Yeah. So, uh, those are just, you know, a few of the things I saw. The biggest thing I I think that came out of what John Ashot did was, you recall the equipment and the uniforms and the hats in that era, right? Right, of course. Wool hats, wool uniforms. Well, they were the first ones to do to do the uh, double knit, you know, double knit poly uniforms. And, and recreate the uniforms in the late sixties. And the reason and for that is more breathe. Well, for, for, for breathing, for, for right. breathing, it's better on the body. The body can breathe. You can move better. You know, it's, the, the wool uniforms were. Hey, you gotta, you know, you gotta be warm in the. You know, you gotta be gotta be warm in the spring, but yet you're. You're, you're baking like an oven in the dog days of August. No wonder. My dad was so focused on all this that uh, they realized that the underside of the cap was the wrong color. The underside of the cap, of the brim of the cap, should be gray. Should because it's less strain on the eyes. Instead of... Remember, in those 50s and 60s, it was dark green or something or a heavy material that drains the energy out of the eye. Holy cow! Who study. So, New Era gets the idea and says, hey, we're going to make your hat. So what they call today the trucker's hat with the emblem up front and the mesh in the back part. Right. That was the allow the, the head, the body to breathe so it'll be comfortable and the underside of the cap was gray. 
And they said, where do you want to call it? And, the, and they said, we're going to call this Academy Gray. And my dad calls Mr. Kaufman and says, you know, we're going to do this, this, and this. And he goes, hey, you can do anything you want to there. You know, you can, you can, you can market that, trademark it, do anything you want to. It's, you know, you're the director, you can, you can run with it. Right. My dad quote says, I don't know anything about hats. So the joke in the family was, you don't know anything about hats. If you would have known one thing about hats, Dad, I would probably be sitting on an island somewhere <laughs> whenever I felt like it, because you own the hat. How many Academy Grey hats did you Aristotle? Oh, Majestic. yeah. Oh, sure. Millions of hats in the first few years. <laughs> That's just unbelievable. <laughs> And I said, Dad, all you had to do was say yes, it'll be mine, Academy Gray. I would not have a car payment if you would have done that. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> but then again, I don't know what I would have done in life. I guess I would have been one of them spoiled kids. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? It's kind of, it was kind of a joke, in a way. But that's, everything was constantly happening, Bob. It was, a, it, was a, it was a laboratory for the three years he was there. At the same time, there was massive jealousy and backstabbing behind the scenes of the other player development people because the academy guys weren't really recognized in the system. Right. And and those guys couldn't understand, you know, I mean... They couldn't understand it. They, they would, the academy players would get promoted and go to other, other A-ball clubs and so forth, they wouldn't play them. They yeah. didn't like them. There was something wrong with them. And it became a political football. What about that so first... Those, 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 those Einsteins basically cannibalized their own system. Right. Because we left in 72, and in 74, Frank White shows up at the big leagues playing second base. And he was pretty much an all-star then, too, right? What, he's been played there 20 years? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. What about what about that first team? The first team that came out of the academy. Remember it? Uh, oh, I remember reading about the first, the first team did very well, the first right? Team won the Gulf, yeah, the first team won the Gulf Coast League and went forty and thirteen and set records for stolen bases. Yeah, that's when the powerful coaches in the state of Florida, like at University of Florida, Miami, would go up there and play the academy, and they said, "We remember not to play when he got run into the ground." <laughs> They got a stipend too, didn't they? Get they get some spending money, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Topics we have in school today. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, play, young players need to know about finance and public relations. I mean, you know, especially in, in this they day. Have classes on it. They practice it, financing, budgeting, running a household, everything. Wow. Everything. And, and nobody else... Nobody else uh, caught on to that. I mean, no other team. Uh, that's what I found surprising. That you know, why didn't other teams say, "Hey, you know what, you know what the Royals did? Maybe well, we should do that." that. You have an expansion team starting out, an expansion draft, trying to win. Don't have a stadium downtown Kansas City, trying to compete, and all along they also have this science lab in Sarasota. Right. Totally contradictory to anything that was happening at that time in the game. What I did think was ironic is that probably the team that was probably similar to that would have been the Dodgers. Because they had Dodger Town. Right, right. And they had all type of instructors and video and everything you could possibly imagine. Dodger Town was like a baseball heaven. Right. But it wasn't as scientifically based as this. That, that's, base, that's the baseball science I'm, I was born with. Now, the stuff they're talking about today is absolutely nonsense. Now, did your dad uh, ever uh, speak homage towards Branch Ricky? Because they sound so similar with, you know, like you said, Vero yeah, Beach. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely, because there is Branch was with the Pirates when my father was there. Oh, right. And you had Rex Bowen and Joe Bowen. And, uh, I'm going to look at I'm going to look at this. While you and I are talking. Okay. So, I'm going to find a picture that they took in 1960, I believe, when they were at the scouting meeting. There it is. 1960 scouting conference. How about the names of, in the, in, for pirate fans? you got to remember, the Pirates were pretty darn good for a long time. Oh, yeah. So how would you like to know that the fans that were watching the team in 1960, in January of 1960, that was an this year, wasn't it? Yep, yeah. This is when they had their winter meetings. So scouting was Frank Oshiak, Jimmy Burns, Rosie Gilhausen, Rex Bowen, Branch Ricky Jr., Tom Johnson, Bob Whalen, Jerry Gardner, Bob Fontaine, Danny Murtaugh was in the meeting. Buster Chatham, Merrill Hest, Joe Toole, Joe Bowen, George Pratt, George Zura. Trediak, Joe Grace, Joe Hell Brown, my father, Bob Zuck, Bill Turner, Howie Hayden, George Tour, Bob Clement, Jim Heron. Think there's a few Hall of Fame scouts in that photo? Well, yeah. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Right, thirty-one years old. A lot of baseball knowledge in that group too. I mean, geez. He started out as an area guy, Joe Bowen. He was a high school teacher. Joe Bowen liked his work ethic and what he could do. And my dad kind of was a bird dog for a little bit. All of a sudden, he gave a job, and Dad's territory ran from Virginia to Wisconsin. What? North and south, that that far? I mean, like you know, from it kind of ran up from Virginia, West Virginia. Right. Oh, I see. Okay. And then... It kind of ran at that angle. Right. Ohio. And then 
Wisconsin all the way over there. So he was in a, I never saw it. Yeah. In his car. He had one of the coat hanging racks in the back of his company car. <laughs> like a salesman, right? Like a salesman would have or something. Yeah. The old. Uh, all the clothes are back there. Yeah. All the triumph camp stuff is in the trunk. All the scout cards, etc. Yeah. And so if you look at the lineage of that, and then that, can you imagine what those meetings were like? Oh. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall when they're breaking down players in those meetings? Oh, yeah. And how do you know nine months later, Mazeroski hits the home run? Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, that, that, that would be the, some of the interesting sides of what I consider to be applicable scientific study towards the game. The stuff I see through social media or talked about today is absolute crap. Yeah. And this game has been fractured, watered down, and muddy by so many people that have no idea what they're talking about and parents are paying for it. Yeah. My analogy is when I, I run a summer collegiate league here called the Florida Gulf Coast League. Right. Ironically, Bob, we play our games at the grounds of the former academy. Oh, no nice. Standing. You know, I just I, I looked at a, a picture of the academy. You know, before we uh, started our phone call, that was quite a thing. I mean, with well, it was like the four fields, and then there was one off of it. I mean, it was it was definitely the dormitories. You had the you had the dormitories, the pool, the handball courts, the tennis courts are still there. Yeah, you had a four pack of fields, and you had a fifth field off that had lights on it. Right, that's, yeah, that's the field I was thinking of, the fifth field over the there. Back, the backdrop of the rest of the acreage was what Mr. Coffin was hoping and intending to do was to create a Dodger Town type scenario and say, how many staff members do we need? How many houses do I need to build? And basically house the staff on the ground. He'd even thought about, you know, where is spring training going to be? He had enough room in the back part to actually build a, he could have built a stadium that had everything in one spot. The only problem was what came down to was parking. Right. right. So, I mean, if you look at how many acres are actually used, um, there's plenty of land. There was thoughts of him trying to put some sort of recreational activities on there because if families had kids, he wanted to have a butt-butt area or, you know, a couple of holes of a golf course type thing, a little par three thing. There was all kinds of ideas to create that type of atmosphere where everybody didn't have to feel like they were away from their families and the full-time staff was with their families every single day, basically walking out their backyard to go to work. I'll tell you, I, I'm just amazed at the foresight that your father and Kaufman and 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 other people had. I mean that they they thought that far ahead, like you know, like the families and and recreation for them. I mean, you know. Well, you're 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 at the you're at the, you're at the initial stages of the draft, and you knew the draft was not going to uh, include every guy that had athleticism and could play. Right. So why not get around the draft? You can sign anybody you want to if they're eligible. Sign and go run tryout camps and sign them and bring them to the academy and train them. Right. That was the concept. So you could expedite the development of your organization and not just get squashed every year saying, I hope we do well kind of thing. Yeah. 
When was the last year of the academy? When was the last year of the academy? 74 or? We left in 72. I think the last year might have been, might have been 74, 75. I can't remember. Mr. Kaufman took it over. My dad went back into different scouting and it just, you know, it, 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 it kind of just slowed and fizzled after that. Yeah. Yeah, because I know um, I was talking with, I don't know if you remember Mark Littell, the pitcher. Yeah. Yeah, he had, yeah. I think he was there, but it was probably, um, it must have been like the mid-70s or something that that he went there. It was different than when, you know, you know, in the beginning, like when your dad and them started that. I mean. Uh, yeah, I, I think I am. I think I'm now the besides um, the kids. We're the only living members connected to the original academy staff. Okay. Because everyone has passed away. Right. So there's volumes of stuff I have to read and go through and look at pictures and remember. But I'm probably just scratching the surface about what happened at the academy. So. Right. If you fast forward from '72. My dad's working for the Royals. He gets a call from Charlie Finley. Goes to Oakland. You could have seen that circuit. <laughs> I guess I could write a book. Yeah. Yeah. I said, Dad, you realize as, as a combined between you and me, we hit all three of them? Yeah. He goes, what are you talking about? I go, I work for Marge. You work for Steinbrenner and Finley. We got them covered. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You, you know, I, I just... We were, we, were, we, were in, we were in California, it was the summertime, and it was like July. Like they were like two games behind the Royals. That's the 76, but you got to remember, see how fast the Royals are starting to make, make hay? Right. Think about it. I walk in my dad's office, he's got two phones. One to his right ear, one to his left ear, and he looks at me and shakes his head. He's like, get out of the room. <laughs> Yeah. And we're walking by one of the guys, and my mom goes, what's going on? And, and, and he goes, well, Sid's got Alvin Dark on one line and Charlie on the other line, and Charlie's trying to trade the, trade players, and the players are not going to go play today. They're going to strike. Alvin Dark is in the clubhouse, and Finley's in Chicago. Dad's got both phones talking back and forth. So I said, Mom, I guess we'll go downstairs and sit, and... Now it somehow it gets out into the media. The media is swirling about it. It gets into the stands. The fans know about it. Word of mouth, right? Yeah. You got a you got a, a one oh five game on a beautiful Saturday afternoon at that lovely stadium. And at one ten, the players come running out of the club out of the out of the clubhouse through the tunnel with their hands in the air like they just won the World Series. <laughs> they basically told Finley to go stick it. Yeah. Yeah. This is predating the, so, the pirates, okay? Right. So you, you, everybody, you know, what's the gap in there? This and that. Well, my father is actually home. He had a chance to see me play. There was somebody playing. There was somebody playing high school. 
school at Team USA I was on and went to college, got drafted, got hurt, went back to college. And um, it was a fun time, you know, and all of a sudden, he's the GM of the Pirates. So what did he do in Pittsburgh? He hired Buzzy Keller, Joe Tanner, Dave Trevely, Spin Williams. Spin Williams. Oh, man, I haven't thought of Spin Williams. Bruce Keaton is a pitching guy. Hal McGray is a minor league roving hitting instructor because both Bruce and Hal lived in Brayton. Right. And he brought all the teachers back. So what it was basically was now running an entire organization with the blueprint of what he had learned. Yeah. From Pittsburgh to the academy back to Pittsburgh. So that's the that's the flow of the timeline between there. So it taking that club which is on the brink of extinction, trying to save the club, and then realizing who can play and who can't. Um, looked at the minor league system and had a meeting with the scouts because I don't want to see any more five foot eight players. Right. Well, he had. I mean, you've got Bob Zuck over there. He brought over, and you've got Bart Braun, got Bill Brick, and you've got Joe Consoli. Joe Consoli basically signed Rick Reed in a parking lot. Um, and he said, "Go sign athlete." And by the time you get him to 87, I'm working in the, I'm working the organization. I'm down in the bushes. I went in for a tryout after I graduated from college, and some people said they thought I could do something. I was going to go back and get my master's in finance. I didn't want to be around Pirate City in the summertime. Right. <laughs> no air conditioning in the clubhouse. That was all behind the scenes, too. Pirate City was not taken care of. How can you have a clubhouse training for a few days and not have air conditioning in it. Yeah, especially, yeah. He had, to, he, had to, he, had to, he had to re he had to reconstruct the entire cafeteria in Pirate City. Get budget approved for air conditioning and weight room. Didn't have video, didn't have a straight coordinator. And then realized at the end of the certain time frame, some players had to go. That was that. Wow. Then kept looking at budgets. Woody Heike still lives here, I see Woody occasionally, and I believe there was a time in 86, I had to drive from Virginia to pick up my dad, drive it back to Virginia over the holidays, my dad had bad sleep apnea, so we did all the, <laughs> I did all the driving, um, and it's Friday afternoon, we're getting ready to leave, and all of a sudden, she's these Branch Ricky, and Tom Kaiser, everybody opening up these envelopes, because the office people got bonuses. Christmas. Jeannie Donatelli was the secretary. My dad goes, what's this? It's the office bonus. He goes, we, he goes, we, we try not to lose 100 games. These people are getting bonuses. What about the scouts and player development? Right. She goes, we've never done it. He goes wheeling all the way down the hallway and goes into the CFO and says, how much money you got? I want $500 more now to the scouts and player development and trainers overnight. And, you know, it's not a five and a half, six hour drive, so we didn't get out of there until seven or eight, drove straight home. She was making sure everybody's name was checked off the list, and we got home and the phone rang off the hook for three days. Those guys had never gotten anything. Lee Heike was crying. Wow. My father. That's... And I think that incentivized everybody to realize that 
that was a, that had you know that, that had everybody's back. I was just going to say that had his, had their back, had their back. Yeah. Yeah, I mean you're just not somebody hanging out there in the wind. So it's it's those little things, and I was kind of coaching and learning to see if I could do something. And it was late April, or excuse me, late March. 87, and my father tells me that St. Peter, Tampa, go over, go over and watch this guy pitch for the Cardinals because the scouts don't think the guy can pitch. And um, when I go over there, I, I have a radar gun, and I'm not supposed to go over there with a fan, right? Mm-hmm. Not even hardly taking any notes, and take little scratch notes, so I just come back, and he dad goes, what do you see? I go, I, he goes, what am I supposed to tell you? He goes, tell me what you saw. He goes, I didn't see anybody take any good swings off this guy. You got some good defense, man. This guy throws nothing but ground balls. And he goes, well, one finger shorter than the other. And I said, well, I didn't get close enough to see his hand. I have no idea. <laughs> All I know is that the ball is hit back to him a few times. He threw the ball accurately to first base. He pitched for the Cardinals. Feeling himself. There's nothing going on in his delivery. Ball stinks. Ball stinks. Runs. Cuts. Slider. He goes, okay, that's all I need to know. And I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything. And everybody's getting ready to go to Pittsburgh and it's April Fool's Day. If you remember that trade? Number 87, April Fool's Day? Yeah, what? No, refresh me. I do remember. I the, person, the person I had to go see was named Mike Dunn. Oh, right. Right. Oh, that was some that trade. Was, that, that, that was Dal Maxville and Whitey Herzog. And Whitey Herzog was sick of that, sick and tired of looking at that. Arrogant outfielder. Yeah. Flighty, arrogant, aloof outfielder, that fat, fudgy catcher. Yeah. Quote. We're talking about Spanky and Andy Van Slyke. Yeah. It was Tony Payne for Van Slyke, Lavalier, and Mike Dunn. What? April Fool's Day. I remember that trade. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't realize it was April Fool's, but geez. It was. It was. It was April Fool's. Wow. April 1st. <laughs> and so, of course, the Pittsburgh media blew up and thought it was a joke, and that's no joke. You watch these guys play. Yeah. What I think is so ironic when you look back after that time frame is that Vance like had ability. Oh yeah. And Lavalier, how many Gold Gloves did he win there? And Mike Dunn threw ground balls. And when you have like a uh, Jose Lean jumping over cars and. Maybe Felix Bermin catches balls up the middle, and you've got, you know, Vance Life in center field, Lavalier. That was the structure of a team. You built the team up the middle. That's right. That Branch Ricky's model. Yep. That's, yep. You build the team with speed and defense up the middle. So it's not like Dad invented anything. He just followed the model. And then you had, and he was there when they when they had Bonds and Benia too, right? Then wasn't he there when? Because he brought he brought he brought Bonds to the big leagues and traded for Benia. Right, and Benia was with the White the Sox, right? Knew, yeah, only reason he knew about Benia because on a, on a 1981 Team USA that went to Scandinavia, Bobby was my teammate. Oh. No one, no one scouted him in the Bronx. Wow. Man. So, and then 
you know, you had a Rhodes and a Rush where you could get players for. Right. You could get rid of Johnny Ray. You could make other moves. And it was sometime. Everything was done mid to late August, somewhere like that. I was Iron City. And he didn't have any, you know, he didn't have any direct communication. So he had to call into the main switchboard, and the main switchboard would call your room or do whatever. And the guy worked and said, uh, Jim, your dad wants you to call him. So I went upstairs to the office to call him. He's talking about all these trades and so forth. I got this, and I got Jeff Robinson, and I got Jim Gott, and I got a bullpen, and I got Brian Fisher, and Dre back, and brought Smiley to the big leagues. Here I'm going with all this. Yeah, yeah. But I said, it sounds like you got some leadership. And he goes, yeah, I do. I said, well, are you done? <laughs> he goes, done doing what? I said, are you done making moves? So yeah, I said, go on the field tomorrow and take a team picture. <laughs> that was a, that was the second team picture. If you recall, and they yeah. had team photo night. Right. And Scott, Jeff Robinson was very quiet, but he, you know you have Dave will point in there eventually and so forth. And you get Jim Gott and you got Mike Diaz, and all of a sudden they became leaders. And Wheeler was a fiery leader, anyways. And they said, "Hey, we're not going to be rollovers anymore. We're not going to be pushovers." And that was that. 25 and 8 September or something like that. I don't really remember accurately. And all of a sudden everybody was like, okay, we've gone from last place to fourth. Yeah. This is interesting. But you have an entirely, within 24 months, you have an entirely different dynamic. You know, I... You've got the Don Scal as an advanced guy. You put all those, remember, Bob, is just taking the template and repeating it. Right. Based on the legacy and the history of where he came from. Right. I just, I just uh, think of what, uh, can you imagine if, if your, your dad was doing all that when cell phones were available? I mean, he would have been. <laughs> I mean, this is what's so funny. I mean, one of the questions I'm going to work with uh, on the, some information for another writer is, you know, how does, how does, how does your family and your father deal with the rough treatment of the press? Yeah. Okay, I'm in college. I'm a senior. I don't have, I don't have, I don't have cable. Right. I don't have social media. Mm -hmm. I'm not reading the Gazette every day to see who's blasting him, if it's, you know, Spizek or whoever else, or somebody on the radio. I don't know what's going on. My mom was running a real estate company. We didn't care. Yeah. My, my dad called my mom and said, you know, I'm getting ripped up pretty, pretty good. She goes, well, at least they're talking about you. <laughs> be bad if they weren't talking about you at all. My mom was always lighthearted about it. She was never. She, there was no seriousness with her in the game. It was just a game. Right. We were, the, we were kind of the opposite of my father. I kind of looked at the big picture and said, "What really is it?" My dad was trained with that legacy. There's very rare people that have that type of baseball knowledge, aptitude, desire, and passion in that pool of people. Right. I mean, it goes into the Pat Gillicks of the world, right? They've all had some sort of legacy. All those Toronto guys had a tremendous legacy. Oh, yeah. Those guys, I don't know where those guys are anymore. So, I mean, that, that, that description, that description involved was like, I, I told you, I, well, the writer, I said, I'm not going to talk about something I have no idea about. Right. Care. <laughs> I always tell my dad, I said, hey, dad, keep the papers, because when we come home, we can use them to start the fire. <laughs> shredded in 86, but by the time we get to uh, November, December of 87, he's the Dapper Day of Man of the Year. 
Right. As a Vector Award winner, we're going to all these banquets and so forth. He's writing speeches. I said, that's that. I said, I got this. That's pretty good. That's your fourth and you're getting an award. Yeah, yeah. I'm joke with it. Well, you can't get bigger in Pittsburgh than the Dapper Dan Award. I mean, geez. That's. I tell you, I, I've never seen anything like that. I have never seen. I, the best baseball fans for me have always been in St. Louis. Oh, yeah. I was very fortunate to be in Pittsburgh for a little bit to stay at my parents' house when they moved there. I, I cannot, I, the grasp of the nature of the Pittsburgh fan is probably one of the top in the country. Yeah. You can talk about your New Yorks or whatever, but Pittsburgh has always had the chip on its shoulder. Right. You know, you're, you're a steel pal. Right. You're basically, you're basically, Known for Carnegie and Mellon. Yeah. Wealthy men that built that town. You're basically known as cleaning up your sky. Yeah. Making your hair better and competing. And in the Austin, sometimes in the summertime, every now and then, Mr. Rooney would come into Dad's office and they close the door and have a meeting about the history of Pittsburgh and how to handle this and where you go eat. And it was like a lesson. The, Rooney, the Rooney's were phenomenal people. Oh, yeah. Oh, I agree. From my perspective, I could see that. Oh, they were just phenomenal people. And Dad would do the same thing. It'd be football season, it'd be a Friday or something. He'd walk into Mr. Rooney's office, they'd start talking baseball. That's right. Rooney was a big baseball fan, too, right? I mean... Humongous. Remember, you're yeah. in that stadium. Everybody was in the same stadium. Right. The old days of football, baseball shared the same stadium. Yeah. Yeah, multi-purpose, yeah. Multi-purpose, you got Steelers and Pirates personnel and offices and everything in the stadium. Multiple clubhouses. And they were, they, they were, they were at least once a month, sometimes twice a month. So, yeah. it was just a lot of, a lot transpired in a short period of time, which in hindsight, with having today's comparison, can you imagine competing with what a six million dollar payroll? Yeah. Who was eighty eight payroll? Four and a half, five and a half, six, something like that. Yeah, that's unheard of. That's. And I think what's you know the, the what set everything off was that once everybody got too big for the pants in Pittsburgh, and they got rid of Mac Prime and they made that whole contract extension thing a farce in eighty seven, which it wasn't. It was blown out of proportion by Barker, who was an egotistical maniac and a drunk, was the Ken Oberfeld acquisition. Remember, you had to acquire, remember, you have to acquire before September 1st to be playoff eligible. Oh, right, right. And Daddy's a left handed hitter, and if you get, and Maxwell's going to give him up in, 80, in 87, I mean, in 88, excuse me, and Dad can't fight Barker. Barger's playing golf. Calls the law office. Barger's on the golf course. Barger's now said, you can't do anything unless I approve it. Before it was, I have nothing to do with it. You do it. Right. Now we're winning. I have to approve it. Of course. Ego, that... ego destroys everything in life. Yeah. So, he can't find Barger. My opinion was that he was probably sucking down Matt Hatton on the 19th hole smoking lung darts. <laughs> that was my observation of Barger. You can record that one too. <laughs> I mean, 
if you were if you were highly educated, you were looked down to like you were some sort of I don't know, I don't know, some sort of just stupid human being. Yeah, yeah. It was that egotistical. So that makes the Obergefell trade. Barger finds out, goes through the roof. And I think I think they owed Obergefell a hundred grand because to be eligible for the playoffs, the Bargers went went like playoff, went playoff, playoffs. And my father goes, have you ever seen a team collapse? He goes, no one from New York has called and said, we're not going to collapse. Well, you know what? We might collapse. Might as well load up so you're in second play. That started all that media friction. And he was hard to work with and hard to get along with. And blah, blah, blah. Was he could just, that was all Barker's bullshit. Yeah. And so now you have fractions and, and you know, Micro fractions and fractured relationships and so but they're trying to win. Trying to draw a million people again, trying to win, not just spend a second and be happy. Right. You know, you know in eighty eight the, the mess ran away with everything, but you don't know that going in September one. So you get to part of September where there's you know, where there's organizational meetings and you know, all those few of those owners and everybody's reviewing all the players and going over agenda for the fall and instructional league and it takes three or four days. And that makes a statement in front of everybody we have to even go further and stronger in scouting and acquisition and player development because our young players we will not be able to afford. Says it in front of the group. Who <laughs> any owners? Well, is it true or not? Well, no, don't. At a certain point, in 1988, at a certain point in time, based on contractual status and time, could they keep those players? Yeah. Did they stay? Did Bonds retire as a pirate? <laughs> no. <laughs> Unfortunately what, not. What was July 1st? What was July 1st? Bobby Bonilla Day? Yep. Did he stay? Did those guys stay? No. So based on projections, and you're, based, you're basing it on success and projections and winning. And the ownership went through the roof. What do you mean we can't afford a We own this, we own that. He goes, you don't understand. He explained to you. And they didn't like it. Parker didn't like it. They didn't like being told the truth. Yeah. So you stink in 89, and you're competitive, and where do the players go? They can't afford them. Yeah. As a long-suffering pirate fan, I I know that tune. It's uh... you have to maintain that train. I remember Stan Belinda showing up with a broken ankle and Joe Consoli signed him because he saw him playing catch. It's a pretty good sign, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Somebody sent my father a video instead of Randy Tomlin catching. He goes, "We always take left-handed pitchers in the draft. Sign him." So he saw his curveball. Yanker wrong with left-handed pitchers. Yeah. There's no rocket science. It's how they're all trained. It's the legacy of how they were trained. Yep. Crafty lefties. That thing is, you know, in my opinion, ego destroyed could have been a steady ship. And that's the ownership of Barter's ego. Yeah. Not all of ownership. I'm not going to name all of them, but there are some in there that, you know, had their head up their rear end, including Barger. And that's that's that. Oh yeah. That's that for the legacy 
generations and generations of Pittsburgh fans in my eyes. Oh, yeah. It was how many years? I mean, what what was it back when Hurdle was there? You, you, went, you, you, you went in 79. Okay. You've got a massively talented veteran club that's not going to quit. And some of those guys get old. Yeah. Some of those guys can't play. By the time you get to 85, the club is wrecked. There's, there's cocaine everywhere. The club doesn't care. They're overpaid. So 79, from winning the World Series to 79, by the time you get to 85 in six years, you've got the best of the absolute worst yep. in the history of your franchise. To the point so where they might be leaving Pittsburgh, night. right? To the point where you're just going to break it up. Yeah. It's going to be like a company. Yeah. Break it up. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And then you have to go through the, through the periods of... I'm talking to Bill LaJoy in 2009. Correct me if I'm wrong. Bill LaJoy is a long, long-time friend of mine. Okay. long-time friend of Dad's, actually. Better scout GM... The Tigers, right? Wasn't he the Tigers, right? Wasn't LaJoy the Tigers? The Tigers guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was, he was, yeah, with, with, with Spark and all those guys, right? And all those errands. So, right. He's working for the Pirates. And, yeah, I think it was 2009, the 10. He calls me, and we're, we're having organizational meetings at the Orioles. He calls me in November, and, um, and Andy McPhail's running what I thought were always some of the best organizational meetings, scouting meetings I've ever been in. Not a doubt. Right. I'm not saying, saying my dad is I'm not saying my dad is the greatest, but maybe off the charts. Running meetings, organized, who, who can do what or whatever. And he was to say, I got a talk to Bill with Joey, and I, I'm, a, I'm advancing for the uh, Orioles then. He goes, yeah, sure, what's about it? He goes, I think uh, they're a higher manager. And they thought about the guy from Cleveland. I can't remember his name. It was in the mix. Hargrove? No. Remember the name? Hargrove? Or no? No, it wasn't Hargrove. It was the other guy that came after that. Oh, um, other guy. Um, so what Joey wants to know about Clint Hurdle. So I've known Clint Hurdle since 1989. We've been friends for over 30 years. So I go on this 30-minute dissertation of what I believe the, the city of Pittsburgh needs, and that's energy. Right. And baseball knowledge. And I said, I guarantee you, Clint will revitalize everything about Pittsburgh. Yeah. Well, you knew him from the Royal. I don't know if you're going to go to the World Series. I, I, know, I, know how, I know how he works. I worked with him, with the Mets. Yeah. I've been with him. Yeah. I said, do not hire that other guy. That other guy looks like a, everyone can fall asleep. Right. <laughs> um, not, not Francona. No. No, Francona's no, no, not. No, not there. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. The guy that never smiled in the dugout. Oh, I know who you mean. I can't think of who he I, Yeah. I'm, I'm starting to get the picture. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you get the picture of the yeah. statue face. Yeah, yeah. But Hurdle, you, you worked with him. You worked with Clint in the Mets, and, and you must have known him with the Royals, yeah. too, right? Cause did, he was, no, that was, he was in and out. He was after us with the Royals. Oh, okay. Uh, I didn't, I went to work with Jerry Hunsbecker in the uh, construction league of 89, and that's where I met Clint. Oh, okay. All right. And Clint and I immediately hit it off and became 
came close baseball-wise. I, I still play in the uh, golf tournament here every yeah. October. He lives here now. This yeah. is where Amory is, though. Okay. Um, that, was the last, la- that was the last round of energy I thought could happen in Pittsburgh. Yeah. I thought there was some, you know, in and around that time through five, six, oh four, five, six, seven. I was scouting the East Coast with the Reds, and there were some pretty good players in the draft in that era. Because we were picking behind the Pirates, and on our board was Jay Bruce and, and McCutcheon. Wow. And Dan O'Brien was a GM the year before. Four in 04, we had taken Homer Bailey. That turned out to be a pretty good first one. Right. And I, and I go, I don't know, he goes, you think we'll get McCutcheon? And I said, no, I don't think so. I think he hit about 15 balls in the third deck at BP. Yeah. That's the kind of power to get at in high school. But either way, we'll take Tabor's time. Be a decent player. Be a solid big leader. Yeah. Probably an all-star occasionally. Yeah. And he started piecing it together by the time Clinton gets there. I think he's got enough working parts. I mean, he's got the guys he knows who are reliable to be his coaches that have been around him forever. He actually put my name on the board to be some sort of coach, but uh, Huntington said, you get four, and then I get four. So my name was taken off the board. I said, I don't want to be a coach for the favor. Right. Uh, we don't do favor. He said, no, 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 I want you to do this, this, this. Okay. But, and I thought, you know, after that, I didn't know where the club was going to go. Yeah. What did you prefer, coaching or scouting? Because you did did both for such a long time. I did thirty one years, so I did I did half and half. Right. Yeah. Uh, I got uh, off the field in two thousand. I was doing more scouting than we had moved to Florida, and you know, basically, I had four kids, and the fifth one the following year. Right. And I could basically set a schedule. There was always baseball in Florida. I knew I could be around the kids and I could scout. I actually like being on the field better. Yeah. Oh, you do? Okay. Um, and then in 2001, uh, Booty gets the managing job in Cincinnati. And I was in spring training all the time anyways. I would scout. They went the same time to scout. I'd be on the field for OVP. I'd be in Big League. I was in Big League camp from 95. Six, seven, eight. That was Triple A hitting coach with the Reds, and I actually had Aaron Boone in '95 and '97. And then Aaron got sent up to the big leagues. They sent Brett down. It was Boone for Boone. <laughs> <laughs> I've been around the Boones, right? Yeah, I guess. He talked to me because he listens to you, won't listen to me. And I said, "That's because you're his father, Bob." <laughs> I listen to my dad. Yeah, right. It's, it's natural. Yeah. <laughs> and Brett comes down and Brett's livid because everybody's in his ear. We have to go in the tunnel in Indianapolis, the new stadium. I tell the clubhouse guy, go lock us in. He locked us in the tunnel. So 30 minutes, I could throw to Brett and he could yell and scream and just get on everything out of himself. And I said, what about, what about who you are, the player? Right. Go play. Go play. You're in the top categories all the time. Just tell everybody, listen, I got it. You know, just, just try to tone it up. I thought that was hilarious. I called Aaron. I said, whatever you do, you're, you're not making an ass of yourself. But what does he do? He goes to Montreal, gets thrown out in his first or second game. Thrown out of the game. Are you going to call? So, yeah, so we today the spring training, and Bob comes in and goes, well, if you're a huge scouting director, because I've got all my scouting assignments for the year, so forth, and Bob goes, 
look in front of Gary, he goes, uh, what are you going to do? And I go, I'm just getting my batting assignment. And he goes, do you realize nobody can throw batting practice on my team except you, Foley, Mark Berry? Huh. So, Bear's not, not on the staff because I'm taking him as a bullpen catcher, Mark Berry. <laughs> and the players didn't want to hit off Youngblood or they, you know, Senior couldn't throw. Yeah. Tommy Hume threw sinkers. So Hume threw all the pitchers. Ronnie Oster and, and Billy Dorn couldn't throw. So me and Mark Berry go as designated BP guys with, with Booney and O'Walk. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, look at the look at the leagues that you. I mean, the Appalachian League is is such a uh, respected like rookie league. I mean, you got a very great opportunity. It's so sad that baseball's myopic view of everything is to punish America and punish leagues by taking the leagues away. Yeah. The the Appy League had a massive history because it was like a gap league. And the gap was, you had the Latin player and the high school player and the junior college player not ready for the Northwest League or the New York Penn League, which was an accelerated, fast, college-dominated league, right? Right. You had this gap space. It wasn't the Rookie League and it wasn't the Penn League. It was the Appy League. Similar to the Pioneer League. Right, the Pioneer League, League, too, right? You ought to see the names that have come out of those leagues. Most leagues no longer exist. Yeah. That's player development. That's, and that's the saddest part for me. I, I always I always like going over to uh who's who are the Orioles in uh, West Virginia? It wasn't Woodfield, it was Bluefield? It was Bluefield. I always like going to Bluefield and telling my team, if you homer, you've left the state. <laughs> because Bluefield's on the state line and over the center field fence I think was what that is deep. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that was a joke. So Butch Husky in 90 was trying to hit every ball out of the park. <laughs> Butch Husky, wow. A lot of power there. Yeah, that was my, my, my 90 teammate. Butch is third, Aaron Ledesma, shortstop, you know, Ricky Otero, Gilvio Veras. Pretty good ball player. Yeah. No, I would say so. Happy way. I just remember, like, on you know, collecting baseball cards, and you look on the back, and it seems like, you know, all of the guys who progressed to the uh, to major league and stuff played, you know, played at some point. At, you know, they coming up, they played in the Appy League. I mean, all the great ones. I mean, it's just phenomenal. I mean, the history of that league no longer exists. All it is is history now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. And I said, I've never seen that kind of left-handed power in a long time, and I've, I've 
was born in the game. Right, right. I couldn't wait to go coach third just to talk to him for three days. Yeah. I was the most coolest thing ever. So, <laughs> you know, all, those, all that, you know, you, when you had the Eastern League, you had teams playing in Pittsfield. Yeah. Well, you coached so the, didn't there, you coach there, right? Yeah, I managed there in, um, That's why I met managed you. Yeah. Yeah, and the coolest thing about Wakona Park was our secret weapon was the, uh, sun delay. <laughs> you gotta tell me about that. What do you mean by that? <laughs> because they built it, they actually built it as a multi-sport park, but home plate faced west. Oh. Appearance wise, or appearance, it was like a you know, window drop. Yeah, he, he, he did nice his first year. He went from team to team and ended up firing nine people. Wow. How, how do you fire Jerry Kuzman? Yeah. <laughs> I don't care if you fire me. How do you fire Kuz? Yeah. I'm a pitching coach up there one year. So, anyway, so that's the. And in the Eastern League, that was the Cubs' double A park. Oh, okay. Learning, he realized he had to hit. 
park because it it extended out to part of the football field. They had to have the ball like 450 feet to get out of the park in right field. Oh, man. It was a great park to develop left-handed hitters and use the whole field. Jeez. Joey Gallas and Miley Blair have no chance in that park. They don't have any chance now. But he yeah. no chance in that park. Yeah. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for talking with me again. And and I remember, like, the first time we spoke was great, and this was even better. So I really appreciate your time. And, and uh, well, I, I appreciate it as well. I, I just have a big heart for all the fans out there. Yeah. I think the fans are getting the raw end of the deal. Yeah. No. Right now. You're absolutely been, right. You know, for, for a few years now, and I, I don't know what baseball is going to do to itself. Yeah. I have no earthly idea. I have not seen a nine-inning major league game since 2015. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's it's quite sad. You're right. Have a great 4th of July. Get to the barbecue. I will do that. Everything's fired up. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, Jim, you take it easy. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Bye now. Bye. The phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, is meant to indicate how children's qualities and talents are similar to their parents. So to honor my dad and his influence on me concerning baseball, I named this podcast, The Baseball Doesn't Fall Far From The Tree, in his honor. If you have any questions about today's program, you can contact us via email at rvhurte at gmail.com. And if you're interested in our new book, Intelligent Influence in Baseball, you can also send us an email and we will let you know how you can order it. In the immortal words of the famous baseball journalist, Red Smith, baseball is a dull game only for those with dull minds.